Hi, everyone. I'm Salma Qureshi. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience research podcast. Today's April 1st, 2021, and I'm really pleased to welcome Jill Crittenden. Uh, hi, Jill. Hello. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, Jill is research scientist and scientific advisor to the McGovern Institute uh, at MIT. Her work is aimed at understanding the genetically defined neurocircuits and molecular mechanisms of the basal ganglia and the interconnected circuits that modulate mood um, motivation and motor behavior in both health and disease. She uses uh, genetically engineered designer mice, behavior, physiological manipulations, and transcriptomics within an anatomical framework to build uh, integrated understanding of function and dysfunction in the basal ganglia network, mechanisms that contribute to Huntington's, uh, Parkinson's, schizophrenia, drug addictions, um, and uh, many more <laughs> diseases. So in the Zoom today, we're joined by um, basal ganglia specialist, Charlie Wilson, our MDP. Hi, Charlie. Hi. And we've got, actually, it's always so special, a special treat to have a PhD student with us. We've got Charlie's PhD student, James Jones. Hi, James. You're second year, right? Yeah, I'm second year. Hi. Hi. Okay, so, um, Jill, your recent work bears down on understanding the, the circuit and molecular mechanisms of stereotypies, which uh, are disruptive or excessive repetitive motor patterns and the cardinal symptoms in so many uh, disorders like Huntington's and Parkinson's. Um, but also drug abuse and, and schizophrenia. Um, so you've looked at many things surrounding stereotypies, including how they develop and evolve, um, what plasticity, plasticity they induce in the striatum, why they're so hard to interrupt, um, and focused in on the striatal direct pathway to dopamine neurons of the substantia nigra. Um, and one of the, the one of the sort of top level exciting things is this difference that you find in um, the effects of projections from of the the two different compartments of the striatum, uh, the striatome versus the matrix. So can you just introduce that work a bit to us in terms of like what, what are the, the, the main differences between striatome and matrix, first of all, and then how does this relate to stereotypy as you study it? Yeah, so the com um, compartments of the striatum are um, what look just like patches. If you look at a section through the striatum, you can see um, there's kind of a background area and then there are these patches in it <clears throat> that express different uh, receptors and neuro neuromodulators. And those patches are um, also called striosomes. And what's really special about them is that they project down to dopamine-containing neurons themselves. And actually, now we know have powerful control over the inhibition and activation of those uh, dopamine neurons. Whereas the matrix, which makes up um, a greater proportion of neurons in the striatum projects to the main output part of the basal ganglia, the motor substantia nigra, if you will, that's thought to go on and be um, important in um, implementing actions selected by the striatum and friends. Um, so they, they uh, likely have very different functions, these two compartments, and why they're so intertwined is very interesting. And in fact, they, they don't have direct connections across them. And so um, even though these striosomes are embedded in the striatum, um, there are not direct connections between striatal projection neurons in the striosomes in the matrix. And so it's thought to go through either interneurons or circuits. And um, there's a number of reasons that we've thought that they're involved with stereotypies, these extreme repetitive behaviors. 
Um, one is just this differential activation that I talked about that's been known for a long time, differential activation of striosomes versus matrix um, in animals exhibiting these repetitive behaviors driven by drugs of abuse. Notably, um, some models don't show differential activation of striosomes in matrix, so it's not um, it's not associated with all forms of stereotypy, but it's um, it's associated with forms that are driven by dopamine receptor agonists, either direct agonists or indirect agonists like psychomotor stimulants um, that are drugs of abuse. Um, and those drive dopamine release. And so it kind of makes sense that this, that this um, habit dopamine system, uh, when you're driving it with a dopamine agonists or antagonists, um, involves the striosome matrix uh, system. I have, a, I have a, a host of anatomical questions. I wonder if it's okay for me to to just try to Dive sort in. anatomy out right from the very beginning. So in the striatum, most of the cells are the projection neurons, and they're basically four kinds, right? The indirect pathway neurons in the striosome, the direct pathway neurons in the striosome, the indirect pathway neurons in the matrix, and the direct pathway neurons in the matrix. So it's been very unfortunate that studies of the anatomy of the striatum haven't kept track of all four cells independently. And for obvious reasons, it's just technically been an obstacle to do it. So a lot has been discovered about direct and indirect pathway connections, and that's been a boon to the entire field. And now we are knowing more about striosome versus matrix, largely because of your work. And, but I'm still confused about the indirect and, and direct pathway in the striosome versus the matrix. So in the matrix, the direct pathway neurons go to the output neurons in the, in the uh, endopeduncular nucleus or GPI and also in substantia nigra. And that's, that seems pretty solid. The direct pathway neurons in the matrix, in the striosomes, are the source of the, these dendritic bo bouquets that are forming, that you've discovered that, that are this like cluster of synaptic complex at that, on the dendrites of the dopamine neurons. But they also project other places in substantia nigra, and um, specifically like it looked like places in pars reticulata where the output neurons are, but caudally. Is that true or is that? So those caudal ones are also dopamine cell clusters. <laughs> so it's not clear that they're projecting to the typical GABAergic SNR neurons at all. Ever. Uh -huh. Right. And I, you know, it's always hard to say never, but clearly they're, they're going mostly for the dopamine projecting neurons. Um, so some people have tried to tease that out um, uh, by record by doing slice recordings. Um, and so I think that the easiest way to think about it is that they're going for the dopamine neurons and the matrix cells are going for the typical FNR neurons. Well, and so in the cuddle one, it's a slightly different kind of synaptic arrangement because it doesn't look the same anyway. Or does yeah, it? Are we just look yeah. at it at an angle. So they also have some have descending dendrites, but they don't form those beautiful bouquets. And one thing that's kind of cool, just because I love anatomy, 
um, is that if you look at the bouquets, what we call the bouquets that are in the anterior portion of the substantia nigra pars reticulata, then you see these clusters of dopamine neurons, and then they have these bundles of descending dendrites that are all bundled together with the, with the striosome axons. Um, and along those bundles, there are some dopamine-containing cell bodies. And when you look in the primate brain, it looks more like there are a lot more cell bodies that are coming down in those. Who knows if they're really the bouquets, but they look like that. And they have a lot of cell bodies in them. Um, and when you go to the, to the uh, more caudal part um, where I was showing, I was showing that the striosomes also project to, that part also has a lot of cell bodies that are just very deep. Um, um, but they do have some, some uh, ventrally extending dendrites. And they're kind of different. In it's almost like it, it forms a, um, I like the onion idea of the substantia nigra having kind of an onion shape because it's almost like they are kind of surrounding um, the, the substantia nigra. And so I don't know... Um, what what the inputs to the rind are compared to the inputs that are really going way into the SNR where there's all these SNR neurons. They must have a different function. Um, I always think of fruit flies. I used to work on fruit flies, you know, and they've defined, I don't know, a dozen different types of dopamine neurons in the flies and all the different things that they do. And I feel like we're going to have so much farther to go in the mammalian system because there's probably 50 different kinds of uh, clusters of dopamine neurons, and they're doing different things. So, and between the uh, yeah, so that was the next thing I wanted really to ask you about is the topography of the dopaminergic projection to the striatum, and of the striatal projection to the dopamine neurons, because the the gap between the rostral and caudal uh, projections that you see from your striosome uh, preparation there's a gap, there's a lot of dopamine neurons in between, and there doesn't, it didn't look like there were, that there was any innervation from that particular set of striosomes to those dopamine neurons. And it isn't just a sectioning artifact because you were showing us a whole brain. So, so that was, that was it, right? So. Yeah. The one caveat is that mouse um, labels primarily the anterior striosomes. And so the projections from the posterior striosomes aren't shown there. Um, so that means those gaps could be filled in from striosomes in other parts of the striatum, making a kind of topography of, in this striosomal projection to substantia nigra. Possibly, yeah. And it's it seems like just with the like with the matrix projections, at least the medial lateral is um, preserved, where the medial striosomes are going more to the medial. Nigra and the lateral striosomes are going more to the lateral nigra, but the anterior posterior um, I don't understand as well. And Fumi Fujiyama some time ago had um, claimed that those posterior ones that are targeted um, are targeted by the lateral, uh, the what what people call the subcolossal streak because it's this strip, James, of of striosome-like markers. That, that forms the rind of the stridum and it's right under the corpus callosum. And so it's kind of a go-to spot for finding striosomes because it's just the rind of the stridum and it, it has all the typical markers of, of striosomes. And then we did some single cell tracing in rats and saw, albeit not with that many cells because it's single cell tracing, 
but that they were, those were the ones going to that um, posterior uh, cluster. And it fits kind of nicely with some people's, you know, models and that maybe the anterior um, part of the, uh, that you could, you could consider the lateral posterior and medial anterior connections um, in terms of uh, how the topography works. It's not the medial lateral so simple, but the, um, but how the, the projections to the posterior and anterior nigra are less, less clear how they're organized in the stratum. Does, does that medial lateral simplicity, as, as you call it, uh, stay that way in primate or is it, is that only in rodents? Um, Charlie, what do you know about that? Um, well, I, think I feel, the, you know, in both, in, in all of these species, the stridum is shaped like a three-dimensional comma. Like there's a big ball at the top and there's a body and tail that goes back. So when we talk about the medial striatum, we're always talking about the head of that comma. And when we're talking about more caudal parts of striatum, they're also more lateral and caudal. And so I think that a lot of the, one of the dimensions of the topography is just position along that arc. And it confuses us when we cut things in standard anatomical planes because the, the arc doesn't appear as an arc anymore. But looking at it in the in whole mount is completely reveals everything about it. It helps a lot. And uh, and so that's why I think that a sort of whole mount look is completely revealing of the stuff I didn't understand as well as the stuff that I did. Uh, so that's why. I yeah. Was and at- I was motivated to do that because um, exactly what you're saying, when you're just looking at a section, you don't know whether you're just missing the section that has something else in it. Right. And so I was comparing a developmental model with abnormally developed bouquets. And I thought, Oh, it looks like they're different, but maybe it's just because I didn't look at every single section um, and of course, mounting and labeling every single section is much more difficult than just doing a whole mount where you can really see, right? You know, you're seeing everything there. And so it's not that you missed a section. It really is true. They have fewer bouquets or whatever it is you're trying to, trying to quantify. But, and the development of these transgenic models, I think will make our understanding of striosome and matrix much, much faster. I mean, that was, like you said, it was a boon for D1, D2. I mean, D1, D2 was also... Um, went faster because the targets are much farther apart than the striosome and matrix. If you're trying to get S and C, as you can see, they're really embedded there with S and R. Um, but I think these new mouse models will be will be very very helpful for teasing that apart. So, so uh, obvious question: Why why are there no fundamental markers for the anatomical gradients for striosome and matrix? It seems like you 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 mentioned that they're difficult to target with single markers across, across different axes. Yeah. And I think one, um, uh, uh, piece of data that shows basically just that the striosome and matrix are more similar to one another than D1, D2 comes from plots of single cell RNA seq. So I don't know if you've seen these, um, plots, sometimes they're called action net or T-SNE, where people um, measure 
the amount and the type of RNA from each gene, and they um, make a plot, a two-dimensional plot, where each cell is plotted along there, and then you end up with clusters that have a similar um, abundance of a particular gene and the, the same gene expressed, and then you end up with clusters. So, for example, you'll have a D1 and D2 cluster that are separated. So they've done this, let's say they put in 8,000 8, cells or something that they've plotted. And then you'll see nice D1 and D2 clusters that are very separated. And then for example, um, you know, if they do it to the whole stratum, then you end up with epithelial cells that are way out here because they're quite different. They don't express meaning finding neurons markers at all. But if you put on top of that, the striosome and matrix they're much more connected. So you have the D1 and D2 uh, striosome cluster that's barely separated and the D1 and D2 matrix, um, sorry, the, the um, D1 and D2 clusters are separated and then within that, but very close to each other are the striosome D1 and the striosome D2. Does that make sense? So I think part of the part of the reason that it's been difficult to get those animals is just that striosome matrix neurons aren't that different from each other compared to D1 and D2 neurons that have a number of genes that, that differentiate them. One of the best striosome markers is still mu opiate receptor. Isn't, that, isn't it remarkably good? I mean, the, when that was introduced, it made a huge difference to those of us who were trying to see it. And Yet I'm still unclear about, I mean, that sounds like it ought to be very profound. One of them is enriched with mu opiate receptor and the other one isn't. And that ought to be functionally impactful. What do we know? I, I don't think I've ever understood what the impact of that is, even for the response to opiates. Do we know anything about that? I mean, I think, well, one study that William Yang's group did looked at that. So they had the OPRM1, the mu opioid receptor gene is called OPRM1, um, uh, knockout animal. And then they reintroduced the uh, mu opioid receptor in striosomes, preferentially in striosomes. So mu opioid receptors all over the body, right? It's in peripheral neurons and all kinds of places. Um, so their idea was let's figure out what's wrong with the knockout animal and then what persists um, when we rescue expression in the striosomal neurons. Um, and from that, they concluded that it was that the expression in striosomes was not um, key for acute pain. So they didn't look at chronic pain, but they did like a tail flick test, I think maybe, where you look at whether the mouse will move its tail. And so uh, mu opioid receptor is important for, for sensing pain, of course, it's a major target. Um, but what they didn't, um, uh, what did change, I guess, based on the way they did it, was self-administration of opiates. So that's kind of one of the deepest studies I know going into that. Um, and I don't know who's followed up on that. And another thing that really bugs me is I don't think anybody's ever shown it in primates. Even shown um, that it is a marker for... Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And it's got a bunch of different isoforms. It's a complicated gene. 
Um, so I think there's a lot of work to be done there. Like, I don't know that um, people have figured out which isoforms are expressed in striosomes versus other areas. Because if you look at the RNA, it's not so clear. Like the antibody labeling is so beautifully enriched. Yeah. And in situ, uh, which might be getting different flavors of isoforms than that particular antibody, it's not so clearly enriched. Someone just guessed that the euphoric effect of opiates would have something to do with control of dopamine cells. But I no, guess but it's down. I mean, every, a lot of people study, you know, its expression in the BTA. So it's it's too widely expressed. I see. It's, it, it's specific in striatum, but it's not specific anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it has major effects in um, in BTA, for example. Yeah itself. So I just have one more of these details. <laughs> I'm sorry. To, no, this I is what people tune in for. This is great. Opportunity to ask Jill some of this stuff. So um, for a long time, it, it there have been observations that make it look like the dopamine neurons that go to striosomes may be different from the dopamine neurons that go to matrix. And a lot, for a long time, that stuff was pretty indirect. Like you just notice that sometimes you can actually see the striosomes using tyrosine hydroxylase, and sometimes you can't. And, uh, um, n- but now, don't, don't we know more about that? Are there a specific set of dopamine neurons that go to the striosomes versus the matrix, and are they located in different places in substantia nigra, or are they just mixed together? I just know about enrichment. Yeah, so I've done some of that tracing. And as you know, um, people have done really careful tracing in the rats and shown that the ventral tier compared to the dorsal tier of the substantia nigra, um, the dorsal tier, James, goes to the um, more to the ventral striatum, um, the nucleus commons area, and the ventral tier goes to the dorsal striatum. Um, so it's kind of a reverse of this, you know, it's not the nice medial lateral story. Um, but the ventral tier... Um, the most ventral part of the ventral tier prefers striosomes, but it still has a bunch in matrix and even single cell studies, they seem to be going to both. So there, I'm guessing there must be some local control over that. I mean, Stephanie Craig, right. His seems like some of that data showing that release is different if you're in the middle or if you're in the edge, or if you're in the matrix, um, middle edge or, middle or edge of a striosome versus in the matrix, the release properties are different, suggest to me that there's local control over those axons versus it just being different cells going to different places. So the dopamine cells that project that are lying in that most ventral place are the ones that are most likely to have dendrites to go into pars reticulata. And so I think- Absolutely. uh, Yeah, I think a lot of that, what you're looking at are those streams of dopamine dendrites and cell bodies are largely coming from the most ventral part. And uh, I've heard it said, although it's not my own observation, that the most dorsal cells often don't have any dendrite going into pars reticulata at all. Yeah, they're more just going along, um, straight along. And Rebecca Evans um, has a GABA-A and GABA-B um, expression data matching with those more dorsal ones not having the rebound excitation. So all they get is uh, inhibition. Um, 
so that expansion microscopy work that you did showed that this that these neurons were more tightly intertwined the the striosome dopamine connections in the ventral that was that that that's what that was Rebecca Evans paper also right that is that's the one yeah her her data um is is activating the striosome axons in the ventral part of that of those dendrons compared to closer to the cell body and her data showed that the farther away she was from the cell body the more impact the striosome axon activation had on the rebound activity of that dopamine cell some technical difficulty there um, Sorry, James, go ahead. So, yeah, one thing you show is uh, she does those channel redoption experiments, I believe, where she induces the rebound burst. Um, I have two questions relating to that. I guess the first is, um, it seems like you're doing a pulse, um, a pulsatile stimulation. Do you think that the, the physiological input from those striosome neurons could still induce that rebound burst is my first question. And the second is, um, why, why is the burst important? Um, what, what is like important about dopamine bursting? Um, so I, w- I didn't quite understand your first question. You're, acti- you're, you're asking about her type of stimulation, whether the, like if you had a striosome cell bursting, whether that would ha- be different from having a single action potential on a striosome cell or... I guess the, the the idea is that these connections can induce a burst um, with channel rhodopsin, and um, the implication being that in in real life it could get this input, uh, like if it got a, a um, barrage of stridal input, it could burst um, by like uh, some rebound excitation. Um, and so my question is like, do you, do you think that uh, in vivo it could get a a physiological input similar to that channel induced input and have a burst caused by those inputs. I guess it's, it's that's, just a question. That's my presumption. Yeah, okay. that's my presumption. I mean, Charlie, you might have something, something more deep to say about that. Cause you're really uh, expert on the, the type of MFN firing that happens and how well we can mimic that with channel for example, in tax. Uh, I think, you know, James is a channel guy and we use chemodopsin all the time and when we're stimulating axons as in that experiment we're doing something that we we don't really trust is physiological it's synchronous high intensity high frequency stimulation of a whole bunch of axons all at once i mean there's an old tradition in neurophysiology of doing that of electrical stimulation and we don't we don't stay awake at night worrying about it. We probably should worry about it a little bit more than we do. And then when channel rhodopsin came along, we just did the same thing. We make these completely artificial stimuli. But um, but sometimes it is possible to ask whether we would get something like that in in vivo. I think it would be it's a good it would be a good thing to test, you know. But it would require in vivo recording. So if we could activates spiny neurons and some kind of realistic pattern and see that. But that's the only way that I know of to ever know for sure whether that. But the other question about what's important about burst, I think is probably more answerable. You want to answer that one? 
That's pretty tough. I don't know. You know, verse are. A lot of dopamine, there's a lot of cachet around dopamine cell bursts. That that then there's a giant literature on dopamine release getting greater when there's a burst. So uh, apparently, action potentials uh-huh. are made in a nonlinear way to produce more dopamine release when there's a high frequency burst than when this spikes are more separated. And there's evidence of dopamine cells doing something like bursts in, in these uh, conditioning experiments. So I think uh, every time we see a burst in a dopamine neuron, we get very excited about it. And uh, and the, the reason for that is partly just historical, historical thinking about dopamine neurons. Yeah, and I mean, you're so tired of the 10 hertz or whatever. It's like, finally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing that I think is is interesting about this input is um, is that the VTA has a lot of input also to the dorsal stridum, right? And it's a different dopamine set, and it's one we associate a lot with just get up and go movements as well. Um, and so I like I've thought, how does the stridum keep track when you have dopamine that drives an action, right? That motivates an action. And then it has to keep track of what the outcome was, whether there was an unexpected reward, for example, might be one of the most important things for the stridum. Um, And so there must be a way of getting rid of all that dopamine that was first used just to motivate the action so that you can really sense the next outcome. Or what if there's a pause because you didn't get an expected reward and you want to change that habit, right? You've been doing that thing and getting an expected reward and you need to figure out it's no longer rewarding the pauses are quite subtle um so it might be even more important to be able to clear out the the dopamine that was involved in driving an initial uh get up and go and do this thing in order to sense that that second wave i don't know what do you guys think about that how does um i do know that a lot of um you know you you talked about these drugs like amphetamines and some of them have to do with clearing out dopamine, right? Um, and they clearly have a behavioral effect. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Then just everything is dissociated. So uh, you hear people talk about cocaine, for example, like, Oh yeah, I really feel like I'm doing a great job when I'm high on cocaine, you know, and then they go back not high and look at what they did. <laughs> like, no, it actually wasn't a very good piece of music that I wrote. Or I'm back to the studio. Let's <laughs> try to do it straight. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's disconnecting the action and the and the true value of what you're getting from it. But it's remarkable but, at blocking dopamine reuptake because dopamine reuptake by dopamine axons is really the only way to get rid of dopamine in this triatum. And without that, it'll hang around crazy long amount of time and anyway it stays around for a long time after after release uh, at first i thought maybe that stuff was that was just an artifact of the way dopamine was being measured but now it's very clear that dopamine stays around for a long time after any release and then you 
block reuptake completely with cocaine and the system doesn't completely break. I mean, people have an artificial sense of accomplishment and <laughs> that's it. And so I, I find that amazing. I would have thought that would lead to a total system failure when you quit clearing dopamine correctly for exactly for the reason you just said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things. When I we were, I was working with somebody measuring uh, with the fast scan cyclic voltammetry and EVO dopamine release in the stridum. And um, that's where I was just shocked, right? That with the amphetamine, it was like a thousand fold higher or something. And it made me think of how um, there's so much more intracellular dopamine than extracellular. Like that's long been known, right? That the levels of dopamine intracellular are much higher than extracellular. Um, and it made me wonder if it's because we're not looking at a synapse, like maybe it really goes to that 1000 fold at a synapse, but because we have this really blunt measurement, we can never see that it's really changing to that extreme degree, but just in one tiny circuit so that you can't measure it with a blunt instrument. Um, so I suppose that's one way in which, um, you could keep some specificity even in the face of completely blocking reuptake that you just force it out at really high levels in some tiny circuit. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other long uh, unknown quantity about dopamine is how, to what extent is it acting at synaptic receptors versus extra synaptic receptors? And clearly both things are happening, but the, the importance of each one is relative importance of each one is not so clear. So before you get away, I've got to ask you though about the uh, the indirect pathway from the striosome. So in your genetic labeling, you are getting both of them, and so you get to see the projections to globus pallidus. And some of those are actually direct pathway collaterals, and, but a lot of them are indirect pathway connections to globus pallidus. So if we think of that direct pathway from the striosome as being a, you know, a personal communication line between the striatum and the dopamine neurons, and maybe the dopamine neurons that go back to the striosome are specifically a group of neurons that got input from the striosome itself. That's a possibility, right? If there's topography in both pathways. Yeah. Then, uh, although I guess that's not an established fact, it's just a possibility given topography, but if the topography is good, then it's going to be that way. Yeah, definitely. If like when I've done labeling of those bouquets um, projecting uh, where they're projecting, so just viral labeling of bouquet dopamine neurons, they love to go to the dorsal striatum and they prefer to go to the striosomes. So yeah, I think the loop idea is like a private, a private line between those two. So the indirect pathway from the striosomes, just for the sake of symmetry, how could we, I mean, what does it look like? Does it make synapses and arborize in the globus pallidus the same Mm -hmm. way that the matrix one does? Or can you see any difference? They look different. So yeah, I'm kind of working on that right now. And a funny thing is that a lot of the striosome lines, for whatever reason, label D1 striosome neurons. 
And so it's, it's um, promulgated this idea that striosomes are D1 enriched. So James, you might not know, but for a long time, people thought that striosomes didn't have very many D2 um, neurons in them. And part of it might be just that looking at receptor binding density, right, which doesn't identify a cell, whether it's a D1 or a D2 type, it instead is looking at receptor density. And indeed, they might be more enriched, at least in some areas in D1 than D2. But if you actually count the cells in a striosome, how many are D1 and D2? They're 50-50. It's just like the matrix. And it depends a little bit on where you are in the striatum. There are gradients of D1 and D2, but it's pretty similar to the matrix. And they're going to the globus pallidus. Um, and so I've been um, working hard to collect lines and figure out, yeah, what's going on there um, right now at, a, at an anatomical level. So both the, the globus pallidus neurons that, so we, we kind of um, imagine there's a D1, a D1 input to the globus pallidus is mostly going to non-arvalbumin neurons, non-prototypic uh, neurons, and the, and the D2 input mostly going to prototypic neurons. So that uh, the, the prototypic neurons can project to pars compacta cells. So I, I guess that isn't um, uh, quite as well established as it could be, but there's very good reason to think that there's a prototypic uh, projection to, from single neuron tracing to, uh, to pars compacta cells. It's a very powerful one. And then there, the non-prototypic cells also project to the dopamine neurons. So I'm just, and of course, there's uh, the non-prototypic neurons can project back to the striatum. So there's a possibility for a lot of reciprocal, I don't know, I'm just trying to think of from a, for, from a symmetry point of view, kind of what to expect out of the indirect pathway from the striosome versus the matrix. Yeah, well, I had what I thought was a really cool hypothesis, which is that the reason that we get the striosome matrix imbalance in drugs of abuse are the archi, um, the what do they call what do they call the ones that project back the archi? Yeah, archipalatal. Archipalatal. So I was like, oh, maybe the archipalatal because they look like, in fact, they go more to the matrix than the striosomes. If you look at the labeling. Um, that you get in mouse lines that label the archipalatal neurons, their axons are slightly more enriched in the matrix. And so I thought that would be really cool if that's what's turning off the matrix, right, in a drug-treated animal, those guys. Um, but my data didn't really support that at all. <laughs> so um, I think that, um, I can't remember if I treated, I got the end pass. Uh, mice to look at that. Um, and I can't, I think I, what I did was like kill those neurons and treat them with drugs and abuse. I can't remember exactly what I did, but I ended up uh, picking that off the table. Um, but Rebecca's data are pretty interesting in terms of the GPE projections to the compacta. So um, she sees what uh, I think Fujiyama had also seen, which is that the projections to uh, the compacted neurons, to the dopamine-containing neurons coming from the GPE are going more to the cell body um, than to the dendrites. Um, 
Fujiyama's data was about about them going to the cell body, and then Rebecca actually uh, uh, used chenrodopsin in PV mice to activate uh, those cells. Um, I think it was PV she used, and and uh, Fujiyama was using LHX6, so different lines. Um, no, I take that back. Fujiyama used PV rats she made to do that, and maybe Rebecca was using LHX6. Anyway, should look it up. I don't want to speak out of turn. Um, but the diff- the difference in those inputs is is very different. So there was no rebound activation um, from from activating the GPE axons onto the dopamine containing neurons. Um, and yeah, how those two work together, uh, I hope, will be the next next chapter. Uh, well, we didn't get much to to stereotopy, which uh, the work is published we'll point everyone to the paper on our, our links um but uh this was enlightening i have never delved so deep into anatomy so this was great thank you for joining us jill um crittenden and uh charlie and james uh, this has been neuroscientist talk shop 